0: You know, there comes a point in everyone's life when we need to make really hard choices, whether it's a choice about a relationship, our finances, our careers. Many of us turn to music to help us through those moments. Devon, I'm curious, can you remember a time when a song or an artist helped you through a hard decision?
1: Mm. Yeah, if I think about... Um My life is a musical. You know, there's a soundtrack that popped up. Uh, One of my first jobs was a nonprofit and I had this theme song. It was called You, Me and the Bourgeoisie by the submarines. And I would play that while I was driving around working on different campaigns for the election. What about you?
0: I'll go with a career one as well. It was back in 2013 and I was in a pretty bad job situation and I was listening to lots of Kanye West at that time and he was pretty angry and dark and I was kind of getting angry and dark too but I got in my car one day and I heard the song Blood on the Leaves from that album cranked it up and it took me actually to a better place and made me realize that I had to get out of that situation and so it was very inspirational from that perspective and about a month later I actually joined Tendril and, and that became Uplight and the rest is history.
1: You know, I haven't heard you bumping Kanye recently, so things must be on the up and up.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I am definitely in a much better place, uh, thanks in part to music. And for our guest, Miranda Ballantyne, her song to get her through to a time was from Jewel.
2: I was in my car listening to, you know, this is back in the early 2000s, and the artist Jewel was a very big artist at the time, and I was listening to a Jewel album, and she has this fantastic song called Life Uncommon, which really is about making choices in one's life that present a future for yourself that's that's about making the world that you want to live in and that you want to see
1: Oh, nice. Yeah, Jewel is a big character in the soundtrack of my life as well. You know, who hasn't contemplated their life over a Jewel song?
0: Yeah, right. Uh, So for Miranda, the year was 2001, and she was facing a difficult decision. Should she pursue a career in business, or should she totally change course and go to a tiny nonprofit in the solar industry? And you got to remember, at this time, solar was really expensive, and it was nowhere near a sure bet. And on top of that, she had student loans and a mortgage to pay off.
2: And that really was the first critical moment where I made a slightly risky decision that required some courage on my part to do something new and different and with some financial impact uh, to my own to my own family. But it has become one of the central pillars, one of the central threads that links together what otherwise appears to be a very, very windy career.
1: Mm, yeah, that tension. So many of us who work in energy or the environment can relate to that. How do you balance your desire to do good with the need to make money? So I guess all you do is pop Jewel in the CD player. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it worked for Miranda. Um, and that was actually just one of the many tough decisions that she would have to make over the years. And it was these decisions that would eventually bring her inside some of the world's biggest and most complex organizations. This is Illuminators, a show about the people and the forces transforming the business of energy. I'm Brad Langley. I run a marketing team at Uplight.
1: And I'm Devon Hobbs. I run a product team at Uplight. In this series, we talk with the founders, executives, and decision makers at the forefront of disruption in energy. What do their stories tell us about this crazy competitive business world we find ourselves in?
0: Our guest in this episode is Miranda Ballantyne. Miranda has run energy and sustainability teams for Walmart and the Air Force. And today, she's at the forefront of the corporate push for more renewables. She is the CEO of an organization called the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, or REBA for short. REBA is an alliance of 200 companies. We're talking big companies like Apple and Google and Disney, GM and Citigroup, and these companies are inking these gigantic wind and solar deals worth billions of dollars.
1: Yeah, this space is blowing up. You know, the last I saw, there's a couple hundred companies out there that are targeting 100% renewable energy. That's a lot of wind and solar projects.
0: Yeah, that's right, and as you can imagine, Collectively, these companies possess a lot of buying power. They're directly signing contracts for wind and solar to power their office buildings, their manufacturing plans, and their data centers. And these targets are adding up to some really big numbers. We're talking thousands of megawatts almost every month.
1: So what's Miranda's role in all this change?
0: Yeah, so her job is to help these companies figure out how to buy even more renewables to power their operations around the clock. And they have a goal of supporting 60 gigawatts in the next five years. Now, Miranda is uniquely positioned to help them because she's been on the other side of the table. She's had to buy renewable energy for Walmart stores and military bases and also track carbon emissions across extremely complicated supply chains.
1: So how do you go from working at a small nonprofit to working on a mission of this scope, where you're working alongside and inside some of the biggest organizations in the world?
0: Yeah, so the first thing you do is you pop in your favorite Jewel song. (laughs) But seriously, I mean, it's a good question. It is not a straight path at all. And it's one of the reasons why I was really excited to speak with Miranda. I mean, her career is filled with all kinds of twists and turns and hard choices. And it starts at Colorado State University, where she studied not business or the environment, but neuropsychology.
2: When I was, you know... In, in undergrad at Colorado State University, I was doing things like running rats through mazes and dissecting human brains and thinking about uh, the brain chemistry of how memory works and that type of thing. Nothing at all related to energy, environment, or business. Completely different field. Um, now, it turns out that all of those skills, you know, learning the scientific method, learning to think in a scientific way, in an analytical way, empirical way all contributed to my career. But at the time, uh, working in business and with the business community or on clean energy was not even anywhere in the realm of my mindset.
0: And so you graduate college. Were you thinking of going into some kind of neuroscience field or become a doctor or uh, what, what was that moment you realized that you could apply this to more of a um, environmental uh, profession
2: so it took a few years and I think this is one of the you know, this is one of the things that I talk to young people about a lot today is that you sort of think and you're when you're in high school or an undergrad that you're supposed to know exactly how your career is going to play out and some people do and there's nothing wrong if you are one of those folks and you have a clear path my path was very very, very windy and very, very twisty. And that worked incredibly well for me. I've had a a very rich and interesting professional life. So when I left undergrad, I absolutely thought that I would continue down the path of neuropsychology and neuroscience. Um, In order to do that, you really need to get either a PhD or an MD in one of those fields. There's not that much you can do with a bachelor's degree. So like many young people coming out of college, I had a little bit of student loan debt, and I thought I would take a little bit of time off before going into a graduate program in the neurosciences. And so I started working in retail, again, like many young folks do. I worked in a clothing shop, and then I worked in a cell phone shop. Now, this was back in the days when the only people carrying cell phones were basically truckers and farmers, and they were about the size of a brick or came in a carry-on bag that you plugged into your, you know, your, your big rig truck. Uh, and what I found, quite to my surprise, was actually I loved business. I really enjoyed uh, managing a profit and loss statement. I really enjoyed working with colleagues and employees. I enjoyed working with customers. Um, and I was surprised by that actually. And so I just kept doing that for a number of years and uh, then moved from Colorado to Washington, D.C., kind of kicking and screaming for a very Old fashioned reason. I followed a man from Colorado to DC and thought I would get back to Colorado just as quickly as I possibly could. But what I found once I got to DC was essentially the nonprofit center of our country and an opportunity to take my young career in a slightly different direction.
0: So, this turn in your career brought you to an organization called the Solar Electric Light Fund where you became the director of operations. And this is where you discovered the power of power. Can you tell us about that? Um, I grew up in
2: a very civic-minded family. My father was a, a city manager by trade. My mother worked in the public school system. And both were very, very passionate about poverty alleviation and volunteered their time in poverty alleviation. So in my young years, I became very passionate about poverty alleviation and economic opportunity for folks that didn't have economic opportunity. So when I moved to Washington, D.C., I thought, you know, this is the nonprofit capital of our country. Why don't I – see if I can and can find a job working for a nonprofit around poverty alleviation and apply some of the skills that I've gained in my, my early career working in business. And that's how I came across a wonderful little NGO called the Solar Electric Light Fund. And what the Solar Electric Light Fund, SELF for short, does is bring solar power to very remote parts of the developing world to bring electricity to communities that have no electricity. And what I learned during that period of my career was that energy is the base of everything. You can't improve economic opportunities in people's life without energy. You can't improve healthcare outcomes without energy. Even something as basic as keeping vaccines refrigerated, you need energy to do that. And so that was where the intersection of clean energy, renewable energy, and my sort of first passion of poverty alleviation kind of came together. And that was the that was how I got into the renewable energy space, believe it or not, was not through my passion for the environment. It was through my passion for uh, poverty alleviation.
1: That's quite the twist already. So at this point, she's gone from neuropsychology to retail to solar in developing countries?
0: Yeah, it is Quite the twist and it was her solar experience that really changed her the most it's where she discovered the power of power as she likes to say so poverty and energy access they become a passion for miranda but at this point she was also still really interested in business so she went back to school to get her mba and while there she focused on sustainability and with this focus at business school is where she started to think more about corporations and their role in the environment So she leaves school and she joins a consulting firm. And it's there she starts to work with these Fortune 500 companies and she's writing reports on the future of oil and water. And as it turns out, the timing for this focus was perfect. Uh, It was the early 2000s and as you may recall, uh, this is around the time that Walmart CEO Lee Scott got up on stage and unveiled a first of a kind plan to clean up Walmart supply chain. Miranda at the time, she was aware of this goal, but she kind of was skeptical and figured it was a lot of greenwashing. Until in 2008, as the company was trying to figure out how exactly they were gonna meet these targets, she got a phone call. So then you get a job offer on the table from Walmart to help run their fledgling sustainability team. That strikes me as a dramatic departure from your days working for a solar nonprofit.
2: Yeah, well, looking back on that, that risk that I took as a 27-year-old and, and taking the job at the Solar Electric Light Fund, that risk seems tiny in comparison to the amount of courage it, it took to say yes to the Walmart offer. <laughs> so, um, you know, in 2005, I was happily working as a consultant for David Gardner and Associates. Um, I was quite inspired by the power of the private sector and of, of uh, corporate large corporations in particular, but I was not a fan of big box stores. I will be perfectly honest. And I had not set foot in a Walmart store in probably 15 years. So I actually viewed those initial sustainability announcements from Walmart in the mid to, you know, 2005, 2006 time with a fair amount of skepticism, as I think a lot of folks in the environmental community um, and on the coastal communities, frankly, uh, did. But I watched them very carefully and and interestingly, I watched them hire as consultants some people that I knew very well and held an extraordinarily high regard. I made the decision to take the job and I, when I did that, I gave myself permission that if at any time I was inside the company and felt that it wasn't real, felt that it was greenwashing or... Just touching the surface, just enough to improve reputation, that I would just leave, that I would go find something else to do. And I think giving myself that permission was a huge part of my willingness to take that risk. And I'm so glad that I did because it became a, a really incredible personal growth experience. So it was really going from being a, a a big fish in a little tiny pond. You know, at David Gardner, we were. Uh, two people when I started, maybe three or four by the time I left. To you know, going to a two point two million dollar or million person, two point two million employees at Walmart. Uh, you know, huge, huge jump professionally.
0: I, I'm to hear you talk about. It, I'm surprised you did take it. So, what was the thing that made you say yes?
2: Um, on the environmental side, um, I mentioned I talked to a number of my friends and colleagues who were consultants to Walmart at the time. And one of those people said to me, he said, all right, Miranda, let's just take one example. Let's take laundry detergent. So liquid laundry detergent, before Walmart came along and and made some changes, was full of extra water. So huge bottles of liquid laundry detergent that were largely water. And then what do you do with the laundry soap when you put it into your laundry bin? You add it to water. So if you could persuade the laundry detergent manufacturers to take the water out of the laundry detergent, first of all, it's a lot easier for ladies and gentlemen who are doing laundry to pick the darn bottle up, right, and put it in their cart. But also the packaging shrinks down astronomically. So you're using a lot less uh, plastic to even package the soap and you can put more soap bottles into a box and more boxes onto a truck, so you require fewer trucks to, tra- to transfer this stuff. And Walmart was the first company that required all laundry detergent companies to concentrate liquid laundry detergent. Okay, Great. What The point that he made that really sold me was, look, if our government had tried to mandate that, if our government had said, by law, you must concentrate your liquid laundry detergent and shrink down your packaging and put more on, on trucks so that we lower our greenhouse gas emissions, it would have taken years and years and years and maybe never because the laundry detergent companies might have fought back against it. Nobody likes to be mandated. And yet when you have a market signal like a customer like Walmart say, let's do this, then suddenly all your laundry detergent companies aren't going to make a different laundry detergent for Walmart that they are for Kmart or Target or any other retailer. So suddenly the whole industry changes. And at that moment, although I had already known that the private sector had huge power to drive change, that was such a powerful example for me that I said, you know what? I really want to be a part of that what's the next laundry detergent and how can we make that kind of change in every single product on the shelf that we all use every day? So it was those two things that really sort of tipped me over in saying yes to the job.
1: Oh, yeah. I remember that example about the laundry detergent from last season.
0: Right. That's certainly a famous one that people have written business cases about, but it is just one example of the kind of stuff that Miranda's team was tasked with. Steering the environmental goals of one of the biggest companies in the world is a very complicated undertaking. So you say yes, you walk into this giant, complex organization. Where did you start?
2: So there was way more work than any of us truly had to do, which was a, a great opportunity for me because it meant that Although I had a particular piece of the job, there was so much opportunity to work on so many other things. And I had now spent, you know, a good five or 10 years in my career working on climate and clean energy issues. And so I really was sort of the subject matter expert on the team. And my boss turned to me and said, hey, you know, in those 2005 goals that Lee Scott set out, we set out this goal to be supplied by 100% renewable energy. We don't even know what the heck that means. Uh, so can you go figure that out? And so, although it wasn't part of my day one job description, that sort of became my mandate from the very beginning was to figure out, really, what did we mean at Walmart when we said supplied by one hundred percent renewable energy, How did we define renewable energy? what How were we going to achieve it? How much of that was going to be through energy efficiency? Did we actually mean renewable energy or did we mean clean energy or zero carbon energy? What was the impact we were trying to drive with that commitment?
0: So with all due respect to Lee Scott and every other CEO out there, it's probably not the first time an executive has made a bold proclamation and then said, you guys go figure it out. Uh, so, I mean, it sounds like, we're, I mean, were you almost making it up as you went in, in trying to figure out how you're going to achieve those those lofty goals? Um, there were times that,
2: that folks at Walmart would say, hey, let's do this. I, I had another boss, Matt Kistler, who said to me early in my time at, at Walmart, you know what we're going to do? We are going to figure out across the entire life cycle of every product. And the life cycle means from the time the raw materials are pulled out of the ground or grown in the ground all the way through primary and secondary manufacturing and shipping and retail and customer use and all the way to, to the end of the product's life. We need to know every single social and environmental impact of every single product we sell throughout its entire life cycle. And we're just going to do that. We are going to start an organization with the best life cycle scientists in the world from the best universities at Harvard and elsewhere. And we're going to do that. And I literally laughed. I said, oh, my God, that's, uh, who can we can't do that. And he said, well, if it's not us, who's it going to be? And I really learned all of that from my days at Walmart, that these ideas of setting a bold ambition and being willing to fail on the way and say we might not get to this goal but if we don't shoot for the stars we'll never we'll never get anywhere
1: right that's almost exactly what we heard when we talked to Brett Carter from Excel Energy he was telling us about how they had a goal to be 100% carbon free and how you have to set the goal to be a little bit above what it seems possible if you want to have a real impact
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Brett and Miranda, they have very similar stories. uh, And they were both consumed by these aggressive goals in very similar ways.
1: So what happened next?
0: Well, Miranda's busy buying wind and solar for Walmart facilities. She's tracking supply chains and thinking about packaging. And then she gets another call out of the blue. It was from an even bigger and more complex organization, the United States Military.
2: Um, had I had never had any aspirations of going to work in the government. In fact, I was always proud of the fact that I lived in D.C. for 15 years and had never worked in government, never did lobbying, never worked. I just happened to reside here. But, you know, when when the White House calls, you tend to say, yes, I'll come in and talk about the job. And, and so when I went into the White House personnel office, when they called and asked me to come in, Um, And especially when they said, you know, we'd like to talk about this role in the Air Force and my jaw kind of dropped open like this seemed so it seemed so incongruous. I I really did ask them as many questions as they asked me because I I, one of the things that I very much believe in is ensuring that what I have to offer the world is what the job needs. Um, And I had a lot of questions about why me. So I did a lot of probing uh, before before I took that plunge.
0: So how does one go about greening a large branch of the military? What What were some of the first steps that you that you took in your role at the Air Force?
2: Well, look, the very first thing I did was ignore the advice that I had gotten. Um, as I was coming into the Pentagon, I had gotten some advice from another Pentagon political appointee who had told me uh, – look, you're 40 years old, you've never worked in the military, you're a four-star equivalent civilian, and all of your military peers are 65 years old. Most of them are men, uh, have never worked in the private sector. This is their career. They know this business inside and out. They're going to view you with a lot of skepticism. Um, First thing you need to do is go in and pick a fight and show them that you're going to win and that you're the boss. So I promptly... I promptly ignored that advice because it's just so antithetical to who I am, and went marched myself right into the office of the uh, the chief of staff, uh, General Welsh, General Mark, Mark Welsh, and sat down with him. and I looked at him and I said, "He, you know, he's he's the senior most uh, senior most military officer on the Air Force side." And I just said to him, "Look, I left a job that I loved. I took a big pay cut." Uh, nobody's holding a job for me when I'm done here in, in, in three years at the end of this administration. And I don't want to waste my time and I don't want to waste your time. I consider my job to do in the next three years as much as I can to set this organization up for success over the next 15 years. And I don't know your business. I'm super excited to learn as much as I can about your business so that I can apply what I know to this world. And all I'm asking for from you is to give me a chance because every other military officer all the other four stars are going to look to you for direction so give me a
1: chance and he looked at me and he said you got it huh what a great way to introduce herself. you know i bet it says a lot about her management style
0: yeah it's smart right but miranda didn't stay away from fights entirely she actually picked plenty of them but when she needed to In fact, one was during the unveiling of a major new solar system at an Air Force base. The project offered huge cost savings, and it was a very public display of the military's focus on renewables. But Miranda felt like something was just a little bit off. There was just too much self-congratulation and not enough focus on using solar to solve even deeper problems. Can you talk about this moment, and did it add any clarity to you about the challenges ahead in which you were trying to accomplish with the Air Force?
2: Yeah, this this is a really this was a a, a major eye opening moment for me. It wasn't my first day in the Pentagon, but it was within the first couple of weeks. One of our Air Force bases was doing a a ribbon cutting on a fifteen megawatt solar array. Wonderful, wonderful project. It saved the base about a half a million dollars a year in energy costs. Um, on a on a day, twenty four hour basis, it provided about fifty percent of the base's power. At peak sunshine, it could provide enough power to power the entire base. It was a really great story all around. And you're right that I asked them so. If there's an outage on the wider grid, whether it's a, it's a weather outage or a determined adversary decides to take out a node to disable the power at this base, we can actually sever this solar array from the grid, right, and still keep those electrons running at least when the sun is shining, right? And the answer was, well, well no, ma'am, we, we can't. And I said, well, why not? And they said, well, it's not an engineering problem, it's not a technical problem, but we don't we don't pay for energy security. And I sort of paused and I looked at him and I said, now wait a minute, do we have diesel generators on that base? Well, yes, ma'am. And do we keep diesel on base for those generators? Well, yes, ma'am. And do we have UPS battery systems? those are uninterrupted power systems on the back of our critical facilities? Well, yes, ma'am. And don't those cost something? Well, yes, ma'am. And don't we have people that actually maintain all these systems? Well, yes, ma'am. And I said, well, then I don't want you to come back to a meeting and tell me that we don't pay for energy security. We do. Oh, okay. Um, And so from that point forward, we looked at every clean energy project that we were doing, not just from Is it good for meeting our renewable energy mandates that the White House has given us? Okay, that's great. We've done that. Check the box. Is it good from an economic perspective? Great. We want to do that. We are stewards of the taxpayer dollars. Great. Let's do that. Check the box. But every single project we need to look at from the lens of energy resilience and energy security – we need to assure that that base has the electrons that it needs to power its mission no matter what happens to the grid. Um, so we made a major shift, and and it's exciting. I mean, even a two or three weeks ago, I saw a big announcement of one of our bases doing a you know fully cyber secure, 100% renewable energy, fully severable microgrid. So this microgrid is on the grid during the day, and it can you know, help the grid be more resilient. And if the grid goes down, it can sever and make sure that our military mission
1: can continue. Those are two really powerful stories about change. And what I like about them is she's always focused on the why. What's the mission? And I think that's what helps her find new ways to push and really drive through that complexity to find solutions.
0: Yeah, when you're doing projects of this magnitude, you have to be mission driven and you have to be able to clearly articulate that mission. And that brings us to what she's doing today at REBA. The executives and energy managers within REBA's member companies, they're facing the same challenges that Miranda did at Walmart and the Air Force. So now you aren't just focusing on one company, one clean energy strategy. You're thinking through the strategy of hundreds of companies and really an entire industry. So I'm curious, are there Particular lessons you apply from your work at Walmart or the Air Force to these companies that are buying these massive amounts of renewables? Well,
2: sure. I mean all all of the all of the things I've learned throughout my career come come to play. So part of what we do is I, I what I like to say is we do really two things. We need to lift the floor of clean energy buyers, and we need to break the ceiling. So to lift the floor, it's really all about breaking inertia. And that's an enormous amount of education. So for a lot of our buyers, it's really fundamental questions. Things like, how do I talk to my chief financial officer about doing a long-term contract for clean energy? Um, For some of our buyers, it's as basic as how do energy markets work? I've never done anything but pay a utility bill. How does this market even work? So a lot of what we do is breaking down that inertia. Um, At the same time, our more advanced buyers in our community who have been doing deals and who have the the major inertia broken down or shifted the momentum in a new direction are now really bumping up against market structure failures and intractable public policy and regulatory barriers that prevent them from buying more clean energy. So the lift the ceiling part of REBA's mission is how do we identify the biggest barriers and then innovate solutions to them, whether it's innovative public policy and regulatory structures or innovative market structures or even helping the next generation clean energy technologies coming out of the laboratory system really get to commercial scalability. So we do both. We lift the floor while we're cracking the ceiling.
0: Now... In thinking back across this diverse career, there were a lot of moments of self-discovery as you figured out how to apply your strengths to effect change within large, complicated organizations. And I've heard you describe these strengths in terms of superpowers. What was your process to discovering superpowers? I mean, is there a Clark Kent origination story in there somewhere?
2: <laughs> I wish I flew flew out of the sky on a <laughs> on a um, asteroid or something. No, it's it's not that exciting. Um, I don't know. It's more fun and colorful than. What are your strengths and weaknesses? Um, understanding whether you are more of an intrapreneur or more of an entrepreneur is a really critical moment and for me was pivotal. Um, I hadn't even heard of the word intrapreneur until I was at Walmart for a couple of years and read a small pamphlet called The Social Intrapreneur. And as I was reading this thing, it was like this the clouds parted and the sun came out because it was describing me and the skill set that I found I was coming into um, at Walmart. Uh, It's a very different skill set. And I'll tell you, when you go and get your MBA, uh, you can join the entrepreneur club. You can take classes in entrepreneurship. Nobody ever talks about or celebrates becoming an entrepreneur, driving change from within large organizations. And it is a different skill set. It's often about persuasion and influence and trust building and identifying where you want to go and all the internal stakeholders and levers that need to be pulled to get you there. Patience, tenacity, these are the kinds of of natural superpowers that are required to be an entrepreneur. And the world needs both environmental entrepreneurs and environmental entrepreneurs. And I've seen Entrepreneurs go into big organizations and hate it because it's just you know it's just too mind numbing for them all of the you know the levers that need to be pulled and likewise I've seen entrepreneurs try to s- start organizations and really dislike it. In fact, I would say my current job is an entrepreneurial job and it's one of the most uncomfortable jobs I've ever had. I love it, I don't hate it, but it's very uncomfortable for me. Um, it's a totally different skill set. Likewise, we all have kryptonites. Um, and I would say one of my big kryptonites that I've, I've learned through my career is um, it's really important and I struggle to let other people do things their own way. Right. Uh, So I it's something that I've always had to work with and probably always will have to work with is sort of letting go um, and giving that that power, no pun intended, to to other people to thrive in their superpowers and to recognize that all of our superpowers are required. And where my weaknesses are, someone else has a superpower. And so the strength of building a team and letting each member of the team have their superpowers come through, that can be that can be a real challenge for me. You know, I think it's one of the most important things in one's life and career to, to get to know your own superpowers and your own kryptonites, because um, you'll have a much more enjoyable career for it when you align what your organization's needs are and what the world's needs are with what you really thrive in giving. It's just a lot more fun.
0: It's like the uh, the Avengers for the environmental age, right? Uh, you don't need just the alpha superhero. You can have a bunch getting together to accomplish a common goal. <laughs>
2: that's right. That's right. And the flamethrower and the ice maker are both equally important to to, to getting the villain.
0: <laughs> well, Miranda, thank you very much for your time here. And thank you for applying your superpowers to uh, the energy industry. It's uh, It's very much appreciated.
2: Well, thank you, Brad. It was really good fun.
0: Miranda Ballantyne is the CEO of the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance. All right, Devon. so who's coming up next?
1: Up next on the docket is Michael Liebrich, the founder of Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And later we'll have a conversation with Rachel Botsman, who's an expert on trust. She'll talk about how companies are grappling with losing and earning trust.
0: Illuminators is a podcast from Uplight. If you like this show, and we hope that you do, please support us by subscribing, and then send out the word on social media or rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can also find out more at Uplight.com slash Illuminators. Illuminators is produced by
1: PostScript Audio in collaboration with Uplight. Stephen Lacey and Daniel Waldorf are our producers. Our theme music is composed by Title Card Music and Sound. I'm Devron Hobbs.
0: And I'm Brad Langley. This is Illuminators, a show about the people and the forces transforming the business of energy.